Hello, my name is Anastasia Glova, and this is Bio Unlock from Blue Yard Capital, where we unlock insights at the edges of the bioengineering possibility frontier, and where we explore how humans might live long and prosper with nature as our most powerful technology. I'm here today with Dan Luning, co-founder and chief technology officer at Meetable, a record-breaking Dutch startup that's recently closed a $35 million round to scale and speed up bringing lab-grown meats to the market. I'm also joined by Dr. Claire Baumkamp, a neuroscientist and lead scientist for cultivated meat and seafood at the Good Food Institute. I invited Claire here to help me break down and digest the tougher concepts in what promises to be a meaty episode. I'm sorry, guys. I, I couldn't help it. <laughs> Amazing to be here. Hi. Great to be here and always love a pun. <laughs> That's a good place to start. Um, so let's get into it, Dan. Uh, let's start with the bottom line up front. You just closed a significant round of funding, as I mentioned. What are you doing at Meetable, and why did you need the additional financing? Well, the, the endeavor of cultivated meat is quite an expensive one. So it's such a new field that a lot of development we have to do ourselves. It's, it's quite different from a more adjacent field, which uh, is called precision fermentation. You know, precision fermentation is basically making proteins from another organism. Uh, for example, insulin is such a, a protein that people make using bacteria or other organisms. And this has been around for a very long time. While growing cells from an animal without actually killing the animal is quite new. Uh, so figuring this out and scaling this and reducing cost uh, requires funding and also skilled scientists, which are not cheap. Uh, so that's why we had to raise additional capital to progress, to, uh, progress our uh, work and uh, market entry for next year. So that's why uh, we've been raising money in this uh, not so uh, good financial period uh, for uh, new companies. And what I do at Meetable, so uh, I have a background in molecular biology and tissue engineering, which I used at the time to create the very first laboratory grown hamburger back in 2013. Uh, and I specialized myself in this field because I saw the potential of how much good it could do in this world. Uh, so I then afterwards joined a nonprofit organization called New Harvest. Uh, they were a nonprofit that funded academic research in the space and started their fellowship program and raised money for that. And then through that connections, met my co-founders about five years ago and started Meetable on the basis of a breakthrough uh, stem cell technology that you know is still the cornerstone uh, of our process today. Nice. And Claire, what maybe help me set the scene a little bit for why this topic is interesting to audiences in the first place. Why were you obsessed with getting into this field? Yeah, so for me, it's really two reasons. Um, the first and maybe more practical one, which Dan touched on, is our current food system is just associated with so many issues, everything from uh, problems with food security to antimicrobial resistance, climate change, loss of biodiversity. And it's just really kind of at the cornerstone of all of those issues. And when I learned about the idea of cultivating meat, it really kind of unlocked this idea of we don't have to be asking people to make sacrifices when it comes to the foods that we love. We have this opportunity to say we have technology. It's 2023. Like, come on, we can we can do better. We can make the same foods, but just reducing the environmental impacts and all these other negative externalities associated with meat production. And so it's really a hugely urgent problem to figure out how to make meat, but better. And so that's one reason. And it's kind of 
the whole reason why GFI does everything that we do, the reason New Harvest exists, and the reason Meetable exists, and all of the other companies in this space. And the other reason that I think is important to mention and important not to lose sight of is this is fun and exciting. And as somebody who loves food and loves the possibilities that, that come with the science of food and the things that you can do with it, you know, we, we don't need to just limit ourselves to what exists today when it comes to meat. We can think about how could we make meat the best possible version of itself and what's new and exciting from a culinary perspective as we unlock the possibilities of cultivated meat. I think that's fun and I think it's important that it's fun. It's not the only reason I'm doing this, but it's one reason I'm especially excited about it. And Dan, touching on what Claire said about environmental impact, how big of a factor is that in your interest in the space and the, the work you've devoted, devoted I, yourself I think to? it's part of it. Uh, what is nice about doing this, it has many different aspects that people can relate to, be it the environmental impact, the animal welfare part, uh, or just being, like I said, the fun and the exciting technological development that people are doing. And I think it has a little bit of all in it for me. And I think that's why uh, I really enjoy doing this type of work. And I've been able to do it for the past decade now. Uh, the Japanese have a uh, as an ideology behind this, it's called ikigai. So it's uh, four things, and uh, sometimes I forget about them. But it's, it's skills, yes. passions, what the world will pay for, and yeah, you got else, it, you got category. it. That's about that's it, that's it. And I think I, I found <laughs> the, that for me, circle, but, in this, yeah. Place. So what's in that in the center of that circle for you, or the or the concentric circle? Although the th exactly those things, right? Just being able to wake up and feel that you're contributing to something that does good in this world on all these different aspects. And then the, the thing is that I didn't realize before starting this that it has this extra dimension when you're doing something like this, which is you're creating a company where people also feel that they can contribute to something that they uh, hold dearly for themselves. And providing such a space and, and connecting with this type of people is, is, has been just a wonderful experience. Do you ever face a hurdle when you're talking to people in terms of explaining to them either what you do or why it's realistic? You can answer this question any way you want, just like general popular palatability, how people perceive it, whether the science is comprehensible. I've seen this field going from the five people when we were back in Maastricht to now being this phenomenon inside of the world, getting, getting more mainstream. I've seen everything from pitchforks and torches to red carpet treatment. It, it has been, I still don't know what happened, but there is, has been a moment in time when I was talking about this to my friends and got weird looks, but then something changed and I still don't know what it is that people became aware that animal agriculture actually has a major contribution to the environment. First, it was all gas, oil, cars and energy, and then suddenly it became agriculture. And that propelled this idea and this field uh, into the mainstream. And suddenly when I went to birthday parties, people were interested and people asked questions and people wanted to know more, even though maybe they were a bit uncomfortable in the beginning, they still were curious about it. And I think that was for me, the biggest turnover, the people starting from uncertain to curious. What's the comparison in terms of environmental impact and resources required to get your industry up and running and really unseat agriculture? It, it, it's a bit of a strange question because we're nowadays we're so used to the rapid pace of technology development that people have software in mind when it comes to scaling, which isn't realistic. Also to imagine that 
two decades ago, you know, your phone barely could make a phone call, right? If you're lucky. And now you have like this supercomputer in your pocket that has a camera inside of it, which is just out of this planet. So to think about uh, what we need is, is a very hard question. We are early stage and especially compared to the field that we're trying to integrate with. Because we eat about like 335 million kilograms of meat every year in this, this planet. And those numbers are just so enormous. Well, what's the carbon impact of oh, that? It's, it's terrible. It's yeah. terrible. It, it's not good. In the Netherlands, I think we, ha- we have had the past years, we have had major issues when it comes to the farmers that are rearing these animals. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of nitrogen involved with that. And there has been demonstrations, there has been fight, there has been tractors blocking highways. It has become really toxic because we are producing quite a lot of animals, actually. Most of them uh, are pigs and we export them to, to China and people are like, why do we have to put up with that? Well, one, it's very lucrative. It also is damaging to the environment that we are doing really weird things right now because some of these farms are very close to protected zones for, for natural mm-hmm. wildlife. And what we have seen is that the nitrogen is deposits in those wildlife areas and it, you know, normally people would say, oh, nitrogen is probably good for plants and such, but it's only good for a selection part of the plants, which then starts to overtake the ecosystem, which is debalancing the, uh, the entire environment. So one thing somebody told me, which is really strange, I don't know if this is true, but at least he told me that this is currently happening, that we have shell beds up in our northern part of the ocean, and we dig up those shell beds for the calcium to spread out over those areas because it, the nitrogen acidifies the soil. So then we're trying to destroy one natural habitat to get calcium out to deposit on another natural habitat to make sure that we don't destroy that one. So it, it, it's... You're kind of playing whack-a-mole it, with the externality. It's crazy right? to do that, right? It doesn't make <laughs> any sense. So now currently the, the conversation mm-hmm. has become like to a standstill. Like it, it's a Mexican standoff where government and <laughs> farmers are at each other's throat. That now this populistic party called For Farmers has come about and they've gained quite some traction actually because everybody's quite upset how Dutch government is handling this entire car crash and I've I've no idea where it comes goes from this. So we also have been like strange situation in our own home country that we don't want to emphasize that we're also doing this because it might seem adversarial and we don't we don't think that's actually reality because we're such early stage of development. But you know we're we're small fry that is easily is easy to punch down. So uh, we we try to keep our heads down a little bit on that front and just keep on doing what we're doing. I find the adversarial thing that comes up so often really strange because. Like the way I see it, we're a bunch of humans on the stupid ball hurtling through space. And it's like, okay, we need to feed ourselves and we need to make sure the stupid ball doesn't burn up. And that's that's a shared challenge for all of us. And so when it comes to, you know, how are we going to produce our food? You know, I, I just find it so silly that we we look at it and we're like, oh, well, you know, my profits for next quarter are going to go down if we move away from this one particular production system. I do have some hope because I don't think everyone in the conventional animal agriculture space sees it that way. And we do see, you know, very often people who are in conventional animal ag saying, you know, getting that this is a a shared challenge. And maybe they're looking at ways to make their current production processes more sustainable, which is great. And they're also looking at how can we move to new technologies for food production. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think the more we can kind of see this as this is a shared challenge. Hey, everyone, we need food. Let's figure out how to make food. 
and looking at technologies like plant-based meat and cultivated meat as a tool in our tool belt for for achieving that goal. I think that's how we how we get somewhere. Yeah, this is a sort of a system-wide challenge when we think about civilization scale problems, but we tend to think short term in terms of both our elections and how we think about running a business. You you think a quarter ahead or a fiscal year ahead, maybe four years, but it's difficult to to plan decades ahead, which is the kind of thinking that's required to attack civilization scale problems that are sort of multivariate. It's a, you know, food and the food supply chain isn't just uh, about agriculture. It's also about environment. It's also about jobs. It's also about technology. And so we can't really afford the the short-term thinking that most people are accustomed to. So in light of that, I'm really curious, Dan, how you how you did manage to get traction um, for investors on this? How did you manage to get people invested in such a long-term idea? Um, I think what, what I've understood from reading about your company is that your key innovation and what's made you successful so far is that you've been able to dramatically improve the unit economics of cultivating meat, right? But you've slashed the process of differentiating stem cells into, into fat and muscle uh, by, I think, Three weeks? It's gone from like three weeks to, to maybe just one week? If I yeah, right. it's a bit more nuanced yeah. than that. But you're right in a sense yeah. that I don't know if that was the convincing part of it. I do think that mm-hmm. uh, we got very early traction, especially since Beyond Meat went to mm-hmm. the stock market and did very well. And yeah. then investors saw the opportunity in the field, what they call alternative proteins. And then they said, hey, there is money to be made in this field. And... You know, what is nice is that if you buy a phone, you maybe replace it every, if you're really fancy, maybe every year, but normal people, maybe every two to three years, but food, you need to eat every day. So, and you use it, right? You turn it into poo. So then you eat it, consume it, and you need more of it. A phone, you know, it stays a phone. You don't, you don't convert it to something else. So it's, it's a very lucrative business. That's why, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's so, so big and, the opportunity is also very big because people tend to eat a lot of meat. I think the FAO predicted that in 2050, we require 70% more protein than we do right now and, and mm. preferably you know, animal-related because plants are you know, completely vegan as possible, but not for everybody in this world because the, the nutrients that you need to take from a plant-based diet have to be very diverse because unfortunately animals have very compatible protein profiles for us to absorb and be useful in our bodies. Uh, I I wish it wasn't so, but it's true. Uh, So that's why I think having an alternative besides an animal or a plant, which still fulfills the need for nutrition, uh, but also an emotional part because food is very emotional. I, I completely underestimated that when I started this. The feelings that people have associated with food, the memories people have associated with food. People have entire identities coupled to what type of foods they're eating, right? So underestimating that was for me, you know, a harsh reality that came crushing down like, oh, wow, I also have to cater to that. I need to be also meet people halfway and understanding like, hey, if if I don't feel comfortable with this, I will reject you. And like, well, what's not there to feel comfortable? Because it feels very logical for me to do this. And it's just meat. Right, it's just the same stuff, but then you know you still need to make people aware that even though it's different, it's pretty much the same and it will taste the same. That makes so much sense. Of course, we congregate around food, so obviously there's an emotional tether there. 
which makes it for me such an interesting thing to talk to you about because this is very new to me. I've never tasted cultivated meat. I have no idea what it what it might taste like. And I imagine there's probably a lot of skepticism on the part of the public as to whether this can like reliably replace the agricultural proteins that we're used to. For me, as I think about it, I wonder about uh, what you mentioned already, which is nutrition. How does cultivated meat compare when it's replacing meat that has had the benefit of absorbing all of the nutrients from the food chain, right? As it's eaten larger and larger mammals to the point where it's become a cow. How do you replace that nutritional profile? Well, the, the food yeah. chain for cows is not very big, right? Because it's like grass to cow. Mm. Yeah, right? there's just no, no other mammals that eat into no, cow, right. cows We're eat not grass. Lions here. And, that, and that's what makes it so nice, right? Because, you know, grass grows from sunlight and sunlight is free. Mm-hmm. That makes it very handy that these animals just eat plants. But the nutritional value, mm-hmm. since we're still investigating, but if it's not the same, then this wouldn't be a feasible solution because you, then you need to consume a mix amount more of it to fulfill the same nutritional value. And I think that's similar to a completely plant-based diet, right? That you also have to add other nutrients or supplements to have that balanced diet. This will mm-hmm. definitely make sure that this will have the same nutrition profile. And since we're making the same stuff, we can also investigate right we can measure what we are actually producing and since we have this unique process where we're keeping the cells in a controlled environment and feeding it the nutrients that they require for normal growth we can also adjust that feed to understand how that translates into the nutritional composition of meat claire said very well in the beginning that that's for me the fun part of it that you can now redefine basically of of what it means to to eat meat because it can be tailor-made to your specific situation uh, maybe, uh, expect for me, you know, I can see I'm sunburned because I'm very pale and I was in the sun yesterday. A little bit of extra vitamin D would be great for me to have in my meat. Uh, and all these other type of nutrients, you, you can just think about what, what type of populations have shortcomings. It's a very interesting example for this. Uh, if you ever go to the supermarket and you buy salt, usually they added iodide to this, right? You always see salt with iodide. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they did that is because there was normally a shortage of iodide in the population. And iodide is critically important for some hormone development in your, I think, your thyroid. So if you have a deficiency of that, you create a disease called crop, which like expands your thyroid. You have a huge tumor. Well, not like cancer, but a tumorous growth on your thyroid. And then they thought, hey, what if we just put iodide in salt? Because everybody eats salt, especially in bread. And it totally worked. And it's the same for margarine. They added extra vitamin A to it to combat macular degeneration. Totally worked. And then I think we can also do this with meat. Then you take the next step and to see for personalized food, basically, to see like, hey, what, what is it that I need? What does my, my microbiome need? What, what does my diet restrict me of? And then supplementing that with just a product that you would normally eat in your standard diet. Yeah, that's such a good point. And something we actually have seen some very early examples of from scientists who are working on uncultivated meat. So one example I really like is there's a paper from Andrew Stout in the Kaplan lab, where he and the rest of the team added genes for carotenoid synthesis. So carotenoids are nutritionally important compounds found in vegetables like carrots, And they were actually able to show in these cultured bovine cells, so cells from cow that in theory could become the the basis of cultivated meat, that they're actually able to have those carotenoids produced directly by the cow cells. And they actually show a change in color of of the cells as kind of a, a demonstration. And they showed 
actually less oxidation when those cell samples were cooked, which is really neat. That could have some implications for things like, um, you know, development of carcinogens as meat is cooked. It's an early stage example, but I think a very cool concept that we could take meat and say, okay, you know, how can this be tastier, more nutritious, whatever it might be that you that you in particular need. Right. And and don't get me wrong, right? This is definitely not what we're doing right now. It's it's quite challenging to make already like meat as it is, there will be next phase, right? If people get in touch with this mm-hmm. and understanding how this process would work on a very large scale, then the door opens to these types of ideas. So definitely first to get consumers in touch with this product. After that, then you can start mm-hmm. doing this because if we don't want to alienate uh, people from the start. We just want to introduce them first. And if then, then there's a demand for these types of products, mm-hmm. then we'll start further investigating, but definitely not as a first product to market. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's such a such an interesting question is like, what balance do we strike as an industry between let's make meat exactly as it is and let's try to innovate on top of it? And at what rate do we kind of move from one to the other? My personal take is I think we do both. And some people are going to be into it. Some people are going to want to go the more Mm -hmm. traditional route. That's great. Different meats for different peeps. Like, (laughs) let's do all of the above. Yeah. I want to understand how the process works. You're taking stem cells, bovine stem cells. Or any Um, other species, if for that matter. From cow to petri dish, talk talk to me about how this works. Are you taking a biopsy, or, or are you are we not even harming the animal? What what, yes. what happens? And then how do you get these things to become? So there, there are different flavors for this, basically, to do this. Different companies have their unique methodologies. Let me just talk from my own perspective because I think you know that is most fair because I don't know what other people exactly are no. doing, what their unique innovations are. So we're we're taking a cell called a pluripotent cell, and pluripotent cells is just a fancy mm-hmm. word for like very early stem cell. You were once a pluripotent cell. And taking that, yeah, yeah, right? But then you, you can, yeah, and now, and now you're like 37 trillion cells and ongoing. It's, it's quite remarkable. <laughs> One of my favorite subjects in during my, my studies was developmental biology. It is the closest mm. thing that we have to a miracle that from a single cell, an entire human being with everything on it and growing and organs and arms and modes of the time that it goes well. It, it's it's incredible. It literally is incredible to understand just a little bit of that is, has been such a joy. So about taking those cells and understanding what they need from an animal, and we sometimes take it from the umbilical cord, it depends on the species, because some you know, animals it's easier to get to the umbilical cord, uh, some to get from a blastocyst, and then you take those cells and you place them into an environment where we basically keep it happy because these cells are suddenly ripped out of their context, right? They're like, oh my God, where am I? What is going on? There's like a little ball and they have all these feelers and radars on the outside to sense what is going on in their environment. And you need to recreate the environment that you're used to because else alarm bells go off. And usually what happens when alarm bells go off is that the cells die or either off themselves or just cannot survive in the environment that you place them in. So you need to really understand Mm -hmm. what what is this environment that these cells need. So we do, we understand that. So we place them in that environment and that's nice. And then they're like, okay, so now I'm here. Now what? And then we want to stimulate them for growth. And growth happens by stimulus from the outside in. And this happens through language of cells, which is either proteins, sugars, hormones, any other things, basically also what your body produces to communicate with cells inside of your body, right? As soon as you're full, your stomach sends out a hormone to your brain saying, hey man, stop eating. Or the other way around, your brain says, hey man, you're hungry, start eating. Or any, I was like, oh, cool down. I was all a hormone. 
Oh, uh, heat up, also a hormone. All these things are signals mm-hmm. that are being transported in your body, and there's cues for each cell type to understand like what their function, specific function is in your body. So understanding those, inter- those relationships, we can also communicate with these cells, and we add a protein to it, and this protein called the growth factor. This is just the signal also when you are growing, this is the signal that your cells also are provided with to start multiplying. If you cut yourself and the cells oh. need to be starting to regrow to heal you up, this is the protein that signals to the cells, hey, multiply. That's the only thing that it does. It binds to the cell on the outside oh. one of these radars and internally the cell will recognize and say, okay, apparently you want me to start growing right now because this is what the environment expects from me. So this is what we do. We add that to the cells and the cells start multiplying because that's what cells do. You know, one becomes two, two becomes four. And the nice thing about cells is that's exponential, right? Every cell duplicates. So eventually it can go very, very fast when you're like really into the exponential curve. You can create a lot of it really fast. But then, you know, suddenly there are more cells and they demand more food because also you need sugar, you need amino acids because cells consider type of matter. So you need to feed that, the matter, and they don't have a digestive system anymore. So we've broken down these substances to them so they can readily absorb it. Normally what your digestive system does, we do that for them. So they start absorbing these nutrients and building more cells, becoming bigger. You know, that's a hassle because suddenly you have a bunch of cells that need, requires a lot of stuff like oxygen and heat and water and salt and all this stuff. And so you need to control this environment and become tough because you don't want them to overreact to certain things or you don't want them to be limited by certain things. So it's, it's pretty challenging. It's really challenging to keep them happy, especially when you're doing this at a very large scale. So every step that we grow in size of a what we call a bioreactor, which is basically just a fermentation kettle, right? It's just a stainless steel and we put uh-huh. oxygen and heat it. You need to think about, okay, the cells are sensitive. We don't want to put too much oxygen, not too little oxygen, not too much food, not too little food. So it's very mm-hmm. narrow a tightrope that we're walking to make sure that they're happy. Mm-hmm. But we're keeping them pluripotent in that stage because pluripotent cells have this amazing capacity for growth. Basically, when you are growing, you also have to become one to the th- you know, 37 trillion cells. You know, those cells have the oomph to really make a lot of them. So that's why we want to use that characteristic in our advantage. Just, you know, these yeah. cells do that naturally, so let's use that to our advantage. But only when we have, like, enough of these cells, then we need to start figuring out, okay, you know, in my opinion, stem cells are not yummy. Uh, you know, that, that's unfortunately how it goes, because <laughs> the thing that we eat for... I yeah, no, well, the, the, there's a reason why we don't usually eat them. You know, we eat muscle and fat from animals, because that's what we experience as yummy. So this whole process you're describing is going from stem cells to ch- turning them into, into some sort of No, this is still or? like uh, from stem cell growing them into a, a bunch of stem cells. More yes, stem because cells. Okay. you need a lot of cells. Cells are very small, like 10 micrometers, like some are even a little bit bigger, but they're talking about mm. like the 35 micrometers. So to make like a steak, which are like huge compared to the single cell, you need like a lot of them. So when we have enough uh-huh. of these cells, then we have a unique technology that allows us to steer them in the right direction. Because the good thing and the bad thing about pluripotent cells is is that they can become anything. They become hair, skin, liver, brain, anything. Because you know, you were once that single cell and now suddenly it's, it's all liver and skin and everything that is you. So what we wanted to become only one thing, either muscle or fat. And how we direct those things in the right direction is basically we're mimicking the normal situation that an animal to also experience, but then uh, rapidly and exaggerated. And this is a very nuanced wow. conversation on, on how this actually works. And the way that cells are instructed 
to become certain things like, okay, transform into a liver cell or transform into a skin cell or transform mm-hmm. into a muscle cell. These are only the thing is what happens is that our genes turned on or off. The reason why you have mm-hmm. a liver cell and your reason why you have a skin cell is because there's different genes on or off in those tissues. All cells in your body have the roughly 25,000 genes that makes up you, all of them. But only which ones are off or on determines what type of what we call a phenotype. So what type of characteristics it exhibits, determining what type of cell it is. So for example, a skin cell, if you maybe shrink it a little bit to the alphabet, you have 20, uh, 26 letters and your skin maybe has A, D, F, G on. And that makes it a skin cell. Those combination of letters makes it, okay, then, then I'm apparently a skin cell. Okay, so what about a liver cell? Oh, that's maybe B, X, Y. Suddenly you're a liver cell. You know that by heart? Sorry? Did you, you, did you actually know that? The exact sequence? No, well, yeah, so the, the thing is, we figured actually out what gene sequence we have to turn on to become muscle or fat. And this is what we do. We basically turn on the program, the gene program, muscle, or the gene program for fat. And we can do that very rapidly. So they all become that single cell type. And yeah. that's the cells that... That's the that's innovation. The innovation figuring out what these that's genes are and being able to turn them on to become <laughs> only the thing that we want them to be. And that, I think, also feeds back into the efficiency part. Because an entire animal is bones, stomachs, intestines, all these things that sometimes we eat or sometimes we don't eat. And it's like a huge mm-hmm. waste. And that you have to keep alive for... Well, a pig is, I think, three years. And I think a cow five six something like that and now we can do this like very rapidly because we just grow very rapidly a lot of stem cells and then with eight days turn them all only in the stuff that we want to eat and since a cow uses i think 25 kilograms of food or feed if you call it for animals into one kilogram of beef we can do this much if more efficient because we don't have any waste tissue so it's 25 to one in in agriculture and what is it yeah so we're still working about the, the the Dimensions that we now have is like one to three. So three calories of yes. of feed versus one one calorie of, of yes, that's right. Meat. A lot better than even the most efficient animal protein, which would be something and, and like then chicken. And then people are just yeah, you know that's a nice metric, but also what people don't understand or maybe mm-hmm. forget about is that an animal produces manure, animal belches, which is producing methane. They contract diseases that spread. So this is sometimes not taken into the environmental calculations that also contributes immensely to uh, the carbon footprint that meat has on this planet. Another aspect that... Oh, but go, sorry, potential go counterpoint there. So question. I hear you on the 25 to 1 versus 3 to 1. That's a really nice ratio and efficiency improvement. But at the current level of technological innovation... I wonder how intensive it is to turn that feed into something that those pluripotent cells can actually consume. Maybe that's where the intensive work comes in. No, not really, because we're now working with another Dutch company that is basically converting their Mm -hmm. animal feed industry, at least part, a small part of it, right? Their animal feed uh, industry into cell feed industry. Basically, you can mm. use similar type of nutrients to feed animals as you can for feeding cells. Not 100%, right? I cannot throw grass in a bioreactor and suddenly these cells come out. Mm. But sometimes cows also need better nutritional control, right? You don't want them to have or have certain nutrients in their diet or maybe uh, it's very scarce. So you need to add it to it. So all those nutrients that are being added to animal feed, we can also use and are using. So 
it shouldn't be much more intensive, right? Because that would be crazy. That would also mean that if you're feeding the same stuff to animals, why would it be more intensive than we're feeding to ourselves? But the, uh, the, uh, the benefit is that our conversion rate is much higher because animals don't absorb all nutrients. Animals don't, cannot be optimized by their feed ratios. Uh, animals also use the energy for heat and just for maintaining a body, which for in our case is just not the case. Yeah, all the calories that just go into the process of a cow, like walking around being a cow, producing skin and bones and things that things that aren't meat, organs. That you're not having to expend resources to produce because you're just focusing on, on fat and, yes, um, and exactly. muscle. In your, as you've called it in previous conversations, your high-tech <laughs> that's right. Also, also, I yeah, love that term. Right. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes it feels like that because then when people come over, they're like, oh, yeah, so, you know, we have to feed the cells. And then there's like this, this in the fridge, we have this, uh, uh, this bottle of food for them and you need to feed them at the right time. So, yeah, it, it does feel like a petty oh. suit sometimes. Do you form an emotional attachment? To your pluripotent Our cells. technicians definitely do. When you have like a run in the bioreactor, <laughs> we also have names for the bioreactor. And, you know, no. sometimes they perform really well. And then everybody's, uh, you know, sometimes we have cake when they did really well and they celebrate. Uh, so, this, yeah, definitely that, you know, they're the stars. Without them, we wouldn't be able to do this. So uh, similar that I'm grateful when I'm eating for an animal to sacrifice his life for a delicious meal, I'm grateful for their cells mm. for helping us to achieve this. You know, I think these are the human interest stories that could really help with broad palatability. I hope so. Well, it's, it's difficult because <laughs> it, it's, it's such a different environment that people like to think that their food comes from. In reality, if you look behind the curtain, large food systems usually are very sterile, mechanical, just huge factories. But people love the idea then the idea that food comes from a meadow or like a farmer is getting this fair prize and like just working hard but you know it's this whole fair and you know it's a you have this meme like oh it, it's not much but it's honest work but definitely for <laughs> large food system that's not the case anymore so it's all these hope and desire that your food is being produced fairly but unfortunately that's most of the time oh. not the case the romanticized yes. idea yeah. of smallholder farmer with the meadow and the pasture and the free-range chickens, which is not at all what the industry looks no, like. No, that, that, that's unfortunately that. And also the, the gruesome reality is that people just, you don't, you just don't want to be confronted with that all day because it's so, so miserable. Like, oh, I just want to eat. Why should I feel guilty and miserable by just trying to feed myself? It's such a difficult dilemma to solve right because I, you know when after a day of work you know you're just alive you just want to have a nice dinner suddenly why the guilt trip mm -hmm. yeah and that's such a human reaction i mean i guess hearing you two talk about that I, i'm just thinking okay we have this romanticized vision of where meat comes from let's build an industry that looks like that let's have the cultivated meat production facilities of the future be you know somewhere where you have glass walls where you can go in and maybe it's also a brewery so you get your meat and your beer I'm, this is not an original idea to me lots of people have, have talked about versions of this but you know you have your your fermenters for the beer your cultivators for the meat and you're having a meal kind of in the same space and maybe outside there is a meadow where you know you have the cows and chickens and pigs that are the cell donors and so maybe building a food system that looks like the food system yeah i love that my my dream would be that since you can you don't need a lot of space to produce this you can do this inside of a city. 
And I think that's such a wonderful idea. Mm -hmm. If you go to New York and you have mm -hmm. one of the skyscrapers, it's basically the food center for that block. That you have like a grocery store or a restaurant on the first floor. Well, it's always what, what, do you, what, what is your first floor? In Europe, really, like the first floor is one level up. And I think the Americans have like ground floor is first floor. But I mean like ground floor. <laughs> Just to make sure that everybody has said the ground floor, a restaurant, then second floor, cultivated meat, third floor, cultivated milk, cultivated eggs, so that all the food that basically your the, the local vicinity eats comes from within the city and it's all fresh. So you don't have much spoilage. One third of your food goes to waste by just transportation. And you can basically attune to what that city wants to eat. So you don't have weird access or you don't have things going rotten and you can tune off, you know, if it's a nice summer, you can like, oh, dial up a little bit and make sure that there's enough meat for it because people want to barbecue. Oh, it's Christmas. So you need to produce a little bit more, but then don't need no transportation costs. You don't need Argentinian steaks being transported all over the world. It's just being produced locally. Yeah. The ability to tune production just very, you know, with a, with a short time lag mm -hmm. as you know, you have, oh, it's going to be really sunny this weekend. So people are going to want to grill a little bit more. Let's like make some extra hot dogs and, you know, weather forecasts are good enough now that we can actually have that lead time to know, mm -hmm. okay, you know, this is what we're going to need at this time rather than kind of so let's, know, let's having wait. everything be so almost backwards. It's like, oh, well, we have an excess of this cut of meat. Let's figure out how to sell it to people by discounting it because, you know, it's going to go bad in a few days. So uh, got to get this garbage meat out somehow, whatever. How do we get people to buy it? No. That's not There's actually a word for this, which I learned in the States called glut. Yeah. Glut is basically the, the excess production mm -hmm. of meat because the consumption has not aligned with the production of it. But though, to be fair, right, if, if you're like, all right, maybe it's going to be sunny in like three years, we maybe have a good summer, so I need to start producing extra pigs right now to make sure that I have enough three years in advance, which is completely ridiculous. And there's nothing worse than throwing meat out. Because imagine the amount of resources that took and you're just destroying it. That's insane. You've humanized this for me and created a lot of empathy that I didn't previously have before. So both of you, thank you for that. How to imagine what the marketing looks like when it comes directly to consumers. And then Dan for explaining, I don't know if I call it the ethical case for this, but it, it certainly feels more aligned with how I'd like to see the market working, which is that it's, it's, it's driven by demand, not just excess supply. I want to take us back a little bit to the science here. We got as far as getting a lot of pluripotent cells, well, getting a few pluripotent cells to become a lot of pluripotent cells. How are we getting the cells that could become a hair or a nail to become vascularized tissue? What does that innovation look like? And is, is that something that um, is, a, is a, a key component of your process? So cur currently not. Vascularized tissue is extremely difficult. In my during mm. my academic career, I also worked in a field called angiogenesis, so the formation of blood vessels throughout your body, which is extremely complex. Uh, the the mm -hmm. extent of tubing that you have in your body is just insane. The amount of blood that throws, flows through it and it knows where to go and then the interaction that it has with the surrounding tissues to get fully vascularized tissue, like basically a steak or T-bone steak or entrecote, mm -hmm. 
I don't think we should use biomimicry. So I was making like exactly how a body would work. That makes a lot of sense because it's so complex. If I would be able to do that today, I will probably be receiving a Nobel Prize next year. Because it's, it's yeah, and, and also probably I would also diversify and say, hey, let's do human organs because a lot of people probably could use those. So currently not. We are investigating other methods to make thicker tissues, but it's very oh. small right now, very on the back burner uh, since we want to go to market next year. So we're doing really the, the large conversion to create mass mm. first and then investigate, okay, so what's next? How can we use this technology to make a vascular light or vascularized tissue, really thicker tissues than that mm. we have right now. Because right now, the way that we are growing the cells is in little mm. balls, because very potent cells like to stick together. They form the spheres, and mm. you can produce then little spheres of muscle or little spheres of fat. And that's where you can make hot dogs from or burgers or nuggets or what have you. It's more of a processed mm. meat. And what I mean with process is turning it into a, a shape or a, a, a dish. Like, like minced meat? Yeah, minced meat so that you can make yeah. stuff from it right you can make a you can make a meatball mm, from it, it or like make a hamburger from it or you make a, a hot dog from it those are the products that we're first looking into uh, but then afterwards of course then looking into steak but that's that that's really really hard claire you focus on seafood is it a similar end product where it's kind of minced seafood well it depends on the company i guess one thing that i like to say when when talking about this question of processed versus whole cut products mm -hmm. is it's not just one or the other it's kind of a spectrum from you know something like a hot dog or surimi where it's really just kind of the raw material of meat that is and the, the structure is really purely something that comes from processing and then on the other hand something like a steak where there's a lot of structure on the seafood side some of the prototype products that, that companies have put out are, you know, somewhere along that spectrum towards being a whole cut. So, you know, a piece of nigiri or something is a, a popular mm. kind of demo because it, it has some structure to it, mm -hmm. essentially a small slice of fish on some rice. And so you have that structure. So the very, you know, if you if you picture a fillet of salmon, it has that very distinctive striped look of the the orange muscle and then the white layers, which are uh, a mix of fat and connective tissue. Um, and so companies are able to mimic structure at that level. Like I said, it's a spectrum. So there's a completely unstructured product, so something like a fish ball or a fish finger or something where you have very little structure coming from the tissue, something like a piece of nigiri where you have structure, but it's small. And then something like a whole filet of fish on the other end, which there's a collaboration between Stakeholder Foods and Umami Meats where they've 3D printed a piece of grouper filet. So that has a little bit further along the structure spectrum. But in terms of, you know, a, a whole like filet like a half of a fish. I haven't seen anything like that mm -hmm. from cultivated seafood companies. But in terms of the challenge as a whole, it's really a similar thing. We're talking about muscle fibers. We're talking about fat cells. And if we want a structured product, we want to have kind of the maturation process. We need the muscle fibers to be aligned in a particular yeah. way. The particular 3D structure of fish muscle is kind of its own thing. So that's a little bit unique mm -hmm. relative to something like a steak or a pork chop. But sort of the fundamentals are pretty similar. Dan, how do you get from cells to something that starts to become mince? What, what is that science of like? So it, it, it's a differentiation process. It's really turning the pluripotent mm, okay. cells in the muscle fat. And harvesting that, you have basically like a block of fat from that. How do you initiate the differentiation process. So we're using a very unique technology. It involves a gene editing process. Mm -hmm. 
we're using basically the cell's natural capacity to do so. So the transcription factors, so the, the triggers for the cells to turn into muscle or fat are natural to the cells themselves. But we have a molecular switch built into the cells and we can turn that on on demand. So we add a molecule, a substance to the growth mm -hmm. environment and that switches the uh, cells on to turn into either muscle or fat. So this technology was developed at the University of Cambridge. It was a, a breakthrough to be able to uh, turn these types of stem cells very efficiently into basically any cell that you can imagine if you know the right programming. And that's what makes it so unique and so efficient. Normally, how you would do this is basically mimicking the, the environment that uh, a cell would go through into maturing to an organism. Mm -hmm. That is also extremely difficult and extremely inefficient. Turning one like this bunch of cells into these spectra of different types of organs, but then making sure that it's only one is is very hard. So for an example, if you want to turn a pluripotent cell into a muscle cell, it usually takes about 45 days. And the efficiency of, for example, starting with 100 cells and then ending up at the final stage, usually about 25% of the cells turn into the thing that you want and the rest just strands everywhere because these cells are programmed to become anything. So we figured out how to turn on this program uh, using a gene edit. So you are programming at a cellular yes, level. Yes, it's, it's basically like a computer. So there's a, a, another company that uses a similar technology for human medicine, and it's called BitBio. And their slogan is programming for life. So basically, we know which side. So you can imagine the cell is like hardware. It has all these capacities. Mm -hmm. And basically like your phone. It's all these apps installed. But depending on which app is on, you can... Uh, use it in a specific function. It can be a phone, it can be drawing, it can be a camera, depending on which app is on. And we can also look at that it's very abstractly, right? But looking at cells like that. If we understand which app mm -hmm. to turn on, which program, we can make it do what we want. But then you also have to make sure you speak that language of cells. And these are usually comes in the forms of genes and proteins and all these things that cells are made from. So to know how to control those in the way that is most efficient for us, and especially when you're making a product that is as cheap as meat, you need to be very efficient. Because if you're not doing that, you will not be able to provide the value that people are looking for. Because if your hamburger or your chicken nugget or your pork chop is priced four times, five times, ten times more than the conventional product from an animal, people won't be able to mm -hmm. buy it. Are there already examples of widely commercially available foods that are modified at that cellular level or that genetic level, but that you know, people feel very comfortable? Yeah, like, like a plura, enormous amounts. Papaya is a huge okay. example for that. Papaya were almost extinct. There was a virus that attacked the papaya plant. And they could have made a choice. Either you now let the papaya die or we intervene in the genome to make it resistant. And then we could keep eating papayas. And we totally did that. And nobody cares. We're eating papaya. So every papaya that you eat today is a genetically modified <laughs> version of its predecessor. There's even now uh, whole animals. So there's uh, cows that have shorter fur to be more heat resistant on the market right now, FDA approved and everything. So if it's getting very hot, they have less thick fur for to better get rid of their heat. Mm -hmm. uh, but also imagine just like, depending on what you call like intervening in the genome, because corn used not to be looking like it does right now. It is a grass. It was a grass that you can find outside like with a little, little stuff on it, but we have selectively bred it to become the monstrosity of like a, having a big corn. And basically, wheat, 
basically all the major food staples that we eat today, we have intervened as a human species to be more suitable for mass production and consumption. Currently, we're facing a similar dilemma with papayas and bananas. So there is a disease, a fungus called Panama's disease, uh, which infects bananas and then destroys the crop. And previously, there was the breed called the Gros Michel, which we used to eat as a human species, but then it got attacked by Panama's disease because every banana you eat is a clone. Bananas don't have seeds, right? They don't have seeds. We humans don't like seeds in fruit, so we we breed them out of it, out of the out of the uh, of the plant. So what we do is we cut a small piece of the plant and then replant it, and it grows. Same thing happens for bananas. So we don't they don't create natural immunity. Uh, so the Gros Michel is gone, and now we have the Cavendish, which also is becoming susceptible to Panama disease. So now we also have the similar dilemma. Do we let bananas go away, or do we intervene right now to save bananas? And imagine that it's like the f- fifth most largest cultivated crop in the world. We probably have to start doing something about this pretty soon. And in a similar intent, we are approaching this. We're not here to make Roundup ready crops, right, or BT, or make it resistant to a pesticide. We're here to figure out how we can use the trades of these organisms to our best advantage. So for us, it's basically how to turn pluripotent cells into the thing that they can naturally become, which is muscle and fat. And I, I think to make this, oh, so, sorry, go ahead. Oh, oh no, yes. So, so I think for, for cultivated meat, this will probably be very necessary because cells don't want to do what we want them to do. So helping them to help us, I think, is only use is only feasible uh, using genetic interventions. Interesting. So I guess my counterpoint to that, to play devil's advocate a little bit here, would be, what do you think about just the space of possible cues that we could give cells. So you you talked, I think, really well earlier about kind of the in vivo situation in the body where a pluripotent cell is becoming a differentiated muscle or fat cell or whatever it might be. So cells have cues that they respond to. And it's it's not just one or two things. It's growth factors, it's temperature, it's pH, it's physical strain, it's electricity, it's so many things that then are feeding into that genetic programming. I guess the the way I see it, we've only barely scratched the surface of what manipulations are possible. I definitely see the rationale behind looking at going the genetic modification route, just saying, okay, these are the genes we need to turn on. Mm-hmm. This is going to be great. This is going to work. I guess, what do you say to that point about kind of, there's just this huge space of possible cues that you could give to a cell and if we're using them in combination. So just to give an example, I was at a conference recently and a student was presenting her thesis on cues for muscle differentiation and combining physical strain with electricity and just a a fairly straightforward concept of, okay, well, this cue works a little bit. It's not very efficient. This other cue works a little bit. It's not very efficient. But she actually saw this huge synergistic effect from putting that together. And that's just one example of many possibilities. So I don't know. What do you no, think? I would totally agree with you on that. I don't think it should be one or one dimensional. There are so many things that we don't know. But unfortunately, as a company, we don't have the luxury to explore those. It's more in the academic space. And we are collaborating with academia. But right now, 
we have this technology and especially since it works so well this is of course what we have been moving forward with i do agree that there is a, a thing a space that we haven't explored yet but it, but it does all come down to that these types of things like electrostimulation or movement does feed back into expressing genes again eventually that is that is what what makes the show run right uh, physical this the cell reacts to its environment oh uh, i'm being exercised apparently i should be making more contractile proteins and that's again a gene that's being turned on so it, it can be very synergistical, but then also you need to make a production process that actually is scalable and cost-effective. So this is usually where the, in, the interdependencies between these types of things is where the hard part comes in. We need to produce nutrients that are very cheap, but also a system that can sustain the cells. Okay, we need to want to differentiate the muscle fat, but we also don't want to make it too complex that you can only make very small amounts. So there's all these balances and, and things that you have to weigh before you make a decision when it comes to technology development. And since the technology for us is integrated in inside of the cell, so it grows with the cells, it's very scalable. If you, I, I, we have been doing small muscle fiber development, so like this large muscle fibers and then do, do electrostimulation to see them contract. For us, it was more a proof of principle to show that the differentiation is very high quality since only skeletal muscle cells can contract on their electrostimulation. Uh, but to scale that without frying the cells, if you make like a, a steak and you need to make it contract, you need to put a lot of energy into that, a lot of electricity and also electricity does electrodialysis. So you, you, fry basically also the, the nutrients that are inside of the nutrient broth. So th this is very mm. difficult. Uh, usually the more simplistic method with enough quality, of course, will result into a production process that will be scalable, mm. will be feasible. But I definitely am always curious to know what is at horizon? What else can we do to make it even better, to make it even cheaper, to make it bigger, or even more complex so if you want to go into the more whole cut things. But this is what we have found is is such a such a breakthrough and in, in terms of scalability and quality that this is it's too good for us to um, not to pursue it. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. I always wonder, um, you know, if I had a crystal ball and could look, you know, a hundred years into the future, what does cultivated meat production look like? And I feel pretty strongly that whatever it is it's gonna be very different from anything that we're envisioning today. Because I just go back to the idea of, you brought up smartphones earlier, and the idea that, you know, 20 years ago, phones were something totally different. And so imagine going to somebody from 1923 and asking them to describe a smartphone or yeah. describe what cars are going to look like in 2023. Um, you know, they probably would have said, it would be a flying car, but it would also have features that we would just see as totally dated. And like, why would, why would you do it that way? I always try to keep that perspective in mind of, okay, you know, we're at the cutting edge doing, you know, the best we can to make good predictions of what the future is going to look like. And we're 100% wrong. And it's really just a matter of being wrong in ways that are productive and that get us to that better future. Well, to, to be fair, we, point, we, we do have flying cars because if you stick... Uh, wheels to a helicopter it's basically a flying car it's just very impractical <laughs> that's what we figured out like oh well this is actually not very practical <laughs> to let people steer a flying machine that, that does not make much sense but yeah. uh, we do have them but you're right we, we, we are standing on the shoulders of giants but like you said just scratching the surface of what's possible but yeah. what is interesting 
And humbling is that I think uh, I read this paper when somebody told me that in the past five or like five to 10 years, we've gathered more knowledge, more data, more insights than we have in the previous history of mankind before that. Because the amount of research and the tools that we have today just eclipse everything that we had in the past. A good example of this is the Human Genome Project. The first time that we sequenced the entire genome of a human took a decade and a couple of billion dollars to complete. And it was very poorly done. Now, I think Illumina, one of the companies that makes these devices, uh, announced that they have a new device for within a week of 500 bucks. That time's like a decade, billion dollars, week or like a month. I think a week even, a week and 500 bucks. That's the curve that we're on right now. So to, like you said, like to predict how this is going to look like, and I don't even know how the next five years are going to look like. You're, exactly. you're definitely constrained by the limitations of available technology, right? And so I wanted to ask you to envision or help me understand what would be the most useful to you paradigmatic shifts in, in, in technology that would help you either scale much faster or reduce the price point to where it's something that can be on the market, um, have have what would very cheap, large fermentation tanks for us to grow the cells in. So that's just manufacturing tanks. Yes, but right, right now they are usually stainless steel, and stainless steel uh -huh. is not as readily available as people might think it is, and also okay. quite expensive if you want to make like huge ten thousand to fifty thousand liter tanks from this. So have mm -hmm. a material that still the cells tolerate, because the thing is you want to keep the environment outside. Cells are harmless or like very fragile when they're taking out of a body because there's no immune system. So you want to have it completely closed off, but also not reactive, right? You don't want, like for plastics, maybe like they seep into it. You don't want that. Uh, glass lets light in, but also mm -hmm. chips. So you, you don't want, you want a very smooth surface that keeps stuff out and can be closed off, like airtight. And that usually is stainless steel and that currently is quite expensive. So material sourcing, refinement, manufacture, that's yes. a big uh, constraint for you. What else? Uh, there's a, every day is, is a little different. Definitely the nutrient part, but I, I don't see that as such a, such a big hurdle. It, it, I think it should organically grow with the demand of this product. And I think we're already working on that quite a bit because to be fair, if we would say tomorrow to one of these nutrient producers, hey, I want 10 kilotons, they'll probably say no. No, we don't, we don't have mm -hmm. that. Talk to You should have told me like five years ago so then I could help you with production. So that's what we're doing right now. We're talking to these people like, hey, you know, we think in five years we probably will need this. So they also have to jump a little bit in the deep end together with us because we're also still developing a lot. So they're like, okay, well, I'm, uh, how does your process look like? Uh, do I have trust that this will work out? And then they also, also put resources in developing those capabilities. And that's what's currently happening. So I'm not, not very scared mm. that that won't work. So yeah, so it's really scaling, just scaling and the, having the environment there to do so. What about regulatory constraints? Um, you talked a little bit about the European mm. environment um, and European perceptions. Maybe from Claire, we can hear how, uh, how this looks in the US, but I'm really curious how much appetite there is among oh, i can't stop oh this field this field is uh, full of puns for example a nice one is steak or ste <laughs> yeah so oh i need to inform my stakeholders like it's yeah it's so it's so bad or let, let's oh, get no. to the let's get to the I, meat of this like oh yeah terrible i've gotten to a point with the puns this is a complete tangent but uh -huh. whenever i type the word stakeholder or nice to meet you 
my brain does not know which one is the correct version and which one is the pun. Oh. And it takes me like 30 seconds of so staring. Bad, yeah. like, wait, Ooh. which one is? New which insider level unlocked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's so don't worry it's about rough. it. We're used to it. Oh. We're used to cringe. I, I thought I was being creative in my introduction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine a regulatory, legislative, legal, public perception constraints are, are, are at least a factor, um, if not if not just about palatability, but then at least um, thinking about a future where we are dependent on being able to modify our foods at the genetic level. And so I wonder... Where's the U.S. on this? Where's Europe on this? And where are you as a, as a strategist on this? Europe is very conservative when it comes to this. Mm-hmm. I, f- I think just Monsanto just burned the entire, envi- like the entire environment where this can be a topic of discussion. It's so hard to dig down. Like, what is it what they did wrong here? And one of the things I think what, what went wrong is they weren't open to communicate uh, communicate what they were actually doing. And there was, of course, very nasty legislation for farmers when they used their products, right? And that scared mm-hmm. Europe a lot when it comes to food. So that's why they turned, they turned away and very conservatively, but now seeing slowly moving again to the direction of saying, hey, genetic modification is a tool and you can use this tool for terrible things but you can also use it for a lot of good things, like a lot of good things, like crazy good mm-hmm. things. So just because you can do bad things, you shouldn't turn away from it. And slowly they're realizing, mm-hmm. hey, if we're not investigating this, we will fall behind because a lot of people are doing a lot of good stuff with it. And we want to do good as well. So they're slowly getting towards the bandwidth. I'm not saying jumping on it yet, but moving, buying mm-hmm. a ticket on the, <laughs> if, if it actually the analogy works. But it's moving in the right direction because it's needed to feed the increase of population that is coming. You don't envision a world where we can reasonably feed the population. We are already living in that world. It's not a if anymore. Mm -hmm. We are already living in the world where we are using genetic modifications to feed so many people. And I think with Monsanto, we're not talking about just the idea of a GMO, it's its just loss of trust. It's yes. a company that, that operated in a way that resulted in the company losing trust and reputation because they were using GMOs as a means of control over their customers, which is a very different reason that people are upset, but it gets lumped in as an entire category of GMO. But like you said, it is a tool. The computer is a tool. You can use computers terrible, for yes. information or you can use... Or you can use computers for manipulation and, and um, you know, social media influence and targeting. So I think with market education, if people's perceptions will change. It will take time. It will take time and skillful conversation and debate on explaining what you're doing, why we're doing it, how, how it works. And I think that's why this conversation is useful. So you can start explaining like, hey, don't, you know, we, we actually want to do good in this world. We're not here to control anybody. We're not here to do weird stuff. We just want to make sure that everybody has enough to eat. Can you talk a little bit more, Dan, about what you're seeing from conversations that Meetable might be having with consumers? So, I mean, the the point you made about transparency and 
lack of transparency being kind of what led to a lot of the bad situations we see today. Are you having those conversations with people in the Netherlands? Are you seeing that there's some receptivity? What are you seeing in terms of the specific concerns that people are bringing up, the things that people are excited about that are resonating with them? What is that? Yeah, we, we, we do that quite often, actually, not only in the Netherlands, but all over the world, asking people, what is it that you are looking for in food? And the funny thing is actually in Europe, Nobody gives a damn anymore about GM. It's like number six or seven on the list mm. after. First is is health. Just, is it is it good for me? Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. Oh, is GM? I don't, I don't care. Is, is it good for me? Does it taste good? Price, environment, all those things come way before anything of that. So those are the things that people actually care about. Is it what I'm feeding my family good for them? Does it make them happy for it because it tastes good? And can I afford it? Those are the main things that people are concerned about. And afterwards, you come into this very small digits of security. Like, oh, GM or, oh, uh, is it vegan? Or those type of things come into play then. Like, oh, oh, where did it come from? Uh, But that's much lower on the list. People just want to make sure they can feed their families healthy food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's ultimately what it comes down to is, you know, we're people. We want to eat food. We want to feed food yeah, to our families. Yeah. Um, and then want to hopefully and taste good and not be bad for you. And that's usually very difficult because unfortunately the best of usually something that tastes the best. Um, mm-hmm. But that, that's, yeah, that's it. So that's for the consumer side. For the regulatory side, yeah. So it, it's not forbidden to produce GMs in Europe, right? People maybe get that wrong. It's just a very lengthy process. A lot of scrutiny, a lot of data that you have to provide, a lot of insights. So they really go with a, with a, with a comb through your process and on making them understand and do analysis to prove like, hey, what we're making, this is what we're making. This is how it looks mm-hmm. like. This is the, the thing that you can get into your stomach without it harming you because it just has the normal proteins and fats that an animal would have. And thus showing the data and the proof points there. But unfortunately, it takes roughly about three to five years usually to, to move through the process. Mm-hmm. And as a startup, that's unacceptable because... Eventually, you need to make revenues to stay alive. You cannot fundraise for another five years while producing, right? That's yeah. very costly. That makes it yeah. challenging in Europe. We have seen two companies now in the US being able to sell. Mm-hmm. So FDA and USDA approved. Well approved. It's, it's a little bit different in the US, right? Claire, with, with the FDA, no mm-hmm. questions asked letter. And like, okay, what does that mean? Well, we don't have questions yet. Does it mean approval? Yeah, it's not technically an approval, but it's a no questions letter. So the, the company goes to the FDA and says, here's a bunch of data. The FDA says, okay, wait, hold on. What about this? Wait, hold on. I need data on this. And there's maybe a few rounds of that. And then eventually the FDA says, okay. And at that point you can say, FDA said, okay. Yeah, yeah, which is weird, so right? They, they didn't was, actually say, okay, it. so it's like, oh, no, no further questions. There's no actually okay. There's like, no, we don't, we, yeah. uh, so do, we, yeah, uh, exactly. do you have any more questions? No. Doesn't mean it's okay. Also, no. <laughs> like, so w- what is this? Yeah, no, yeah. we just don't have any questions. Like, it's it's very strange for me. But then also the USDA comes in. Yeah. Uh, and that's, uh, yeah, that's also pretty unique, I think, for this product. I think there's no other product that FDA mm-hmm. and USDA are involved, right? Or, or, or maybe mm-hmm. I'm mistaken on this. I believe that's the case because yeah it's and it's it's a bit strange too the the cool thing in the u.s is that for meat for cultivated meat it's the usda and the fda for seafood it's just the fda except for catfish which is also the usda and fda which is like a whole weird a whole weird thing that doesn't make a lot of sense but sometimes regular sometimes regulations happen through events that happened in the past it's like how did we end up here yeah 
you know, catfish ones happen. It's absolutely one of those. Very strange. Well, yeah, it's just one of those weird historical yeah. things. But yeah, no, catfish are totally a terrestrial animal, I guess. <laughs> like, but it's, it's, it's a regulation. Um, yeah, and then, then for Asia, it's, it's very different. It's it's very hard to understand. But Singapore is very progressive since they don't produce any food themselves. Mm-hmm. So they've been really taking stands on trying to adopt these types of technologies. Uh, but for the rest of Asia, I think they're usually uh, wait for either Europe or America to prove something and then going through you know, a certain process over there as well, but using the data that you acquired from those mm-hmm. organizations as a baseline for them to gain trust. They usually don't have the capacity mm-hmm. or like the insights or like a large history with these types of things to uh, to accommodate uh, this type of uh, requests. But it, especially the GM part, it's very Eurocentric problem because the rest of the world already is beyond it. It's like, yeah, so we just yeah. need to produce a lot of food for people. If it's safe, if yeah. we have proven it's safe, why bother questioning it? So uh, yeah. I, it's, it's very strange sometimes. You know, you've raised this additional financing. You're thinking about moving from, as you've alluded to, uh, pre-revenue to post-revenue. What's your number one focus now as a leader in this company in terms of speed and scale for your product? Yeah. I think those two, right? You you just said it. It's it's those two things. How do you get How there? How do you get there? So uh, right now we're busy with the, the uh, applying uh, for market entry in Singapore. So what you do mm-hmm. is that you start producing your products, and there's a thing called consistency batches. Consistency batches. So you have to produce I think three or four times the product that you are intending to put on the market, and then show the parameters and the, and the process to the government or the authorities and then they say okay this is the product we will evaluate it and then it goes to market but then it's laser focused mm-hmm. at the moment it's really laser focused and there's thousands other things that i would love to be doing because i think they're very interesting and i would love to explore but right now it's just focused getting the team together to align because it's, it's quite a a it's quite a hard process from sales to growth media, so the, the food for the sales, to the bioreactor, so the, the, the scaling and then turning them into that, and then the product development. All these things will have to come together in a rhythm uh, that eventually results into a product. And getting the team into shape to do that is, is very challenging. I'd love to hear from both of you briefly what the world looks like if this industry becomes commonplace. Oh boy, <laughs> I just threw you, just threw you <laughs> under the bus. I'm like, I'll, I'll buy myself some time. I'll buy myself some time. You can have the answer, which is that I can go to a brewery, which has determined based on weather patterns exactly how many hot dogs to produce, and I'm just enjoying a nice afternoon on the meadow, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's exactly it. Is it opens up new possibilities for what we do in terms of food? Can we make a tastier a shaped steak or something like that, or or one that one idea that I think would be really fun is as meat cooks, there are different changes that happen to different proteins. This is a total tangent, but I'm already talking, so we're going here. So there's the myosin, it's the myosin first that denatures, that's a good thing, that's associated with cooked meat. Mm -hmm. Um, And then if you keep going, the actin denatures, and that makes your meat tough and dry, and that's no good. And so with conventional meat, there's kind of this very very slim window of like, you know, your perfect medium rare steak where you've got your myosin denatured, your actin not yet denatured, and it's just kind Uh of a temperature and time thing. Here's an idea for you, Dan, since you're going the GM route already, you know, let's lean into it. Could you make the actin a little bit more heat stable? And so 
have a steak that is a little bit less sensitive to overcooking. So things like that, I think, I think are fun and I think are worth considering. And there's probably a lot of bad ideas out there. You know, meat, meat is a pretty good version of meat already. So let's not mess it up. But um, I think trying those new things is, is always fun. And then on the more serious note, you know, we actually, if cultivated meat succeeds, we actually have a shot at having a future. So that's good. Delicious future. And I think, you know, yeah. yeah, and not only not only surviving, but thriving with delicious meat. But I think something that I don't think we've touched on yet in this conversation that I think is, is really worth pointing out is the question of land use. Mm. So the amount of land that we use today to produce meat is, and that's including not only for the meat itself, but also land used to produce cattle feed and chicken feed and pig feed. It's a lot of land. That is, again, you know, it's looking beyond the direct climate impacts of like cow farts and methane. It's not just that, it's also the deforestation. Mm -hmm. And so if we are able to produce the same food with less land, not only do we get rid of the direct climate impacts, but we also have the opportunity to rewild some of those areas and be able to kind of store some more carbon and do other cool stuff with land. Like there's, we have limited limited space with which to, you know, do everything that we need to do as humans. Forests are great. I think we should have more forests. And I'm, I'm not a land use expert, so I'm not going to give any mm-hmm. specifics here as to like what our land use policy should be. Yeah. But it's something that's a limitation today and it doesn't need to be if we can produce food more efficiently. So that's something I'm really excited about. Claire, you absolutely had me at democratizing fine steak cooking for those of us that always get it wrong. But you really brought it home, dropped the mic with considering the impact to forests and land use. So thank you for that. No, so for, for me, then maybe <laughs> leave, leave the terrestrial realm because I'm, I'm a huge space nerd. I would love nothing more than be able to provide people with meat on either, either space or a different planet. Since we can take cells with us aboard to a different place, but shooting a cow up into space in a rocket <laughs> seems like a bad idea to me. I don't think they will particularly enjoy that. So we'll be able to do that to understand how that would work and be at the forefront of that would be such a blast. We have a space burger, such an amazing opportunity that I can't wait to, to see. And I would love to be part of that for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, guys, for your time today. Great. Thank you so much for having us.